Well, uh, welcome everybody. Before we get started, why don't we have a quick word of prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for uh, this gathering of folks and um, for the last six weeks of uh, this theme of instruction, Lord, where we've fallen short and we repent of our ways, either uh, just here as a church or in these last few weeks. Uh, amend our thinking, especially as we uh, come to think about how we might have unity with fellow believers here in the Birmingham area. Help and guide us in that direction. These things for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, uh, this is our final installment for at least this series. We've been talking about Christianity in a post-Christian age. Um, but, you know, I mean, it doesn't end. <laughs> um, and I hope we sort of whet your appetite to some of the thinking here. Uh, to possibly explore this more, either on your own or, or elsewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, last time I think we had some real good response, especially to the idea of just sort of evangelism in general, but especially uh, right here in our own midst. And um, I think that requires maybe some follow-through. Would some of you be interested in exploring uh, that kind of topic more? Um, you can nod your head or... Or whatever, <laughs> um, and uh, if that's true, we'll think of, of something further down the road. And I think something I'd love to do is I mentioned this last time. There's the book Soul Searching. Um, you don't have to read the whole thing unless you're interested. But there's a um, a documentary that they came out based on the research looking at uh, the spiritual lives of American teenagers, and particularly exploring the concept they deem moralistic therapeutic theism. Um, and I think it'd be cool to maybe do a two-part uh, two session at some point in the next, I don't know, calendar year or so, uh, where we watch half the video and then have some discussion. Because it would take at least two sessions, maybe three, to, to get through the whole documentary. Um, so uh, we've, uh, we've uh, just put a together a high-tech piece of paper that says name and email address. If you're injured, you know, if you're just here because you don't know where else to go this morning, you don't really care what we're talking about, feel free to pass it up. But if you want to, uh, if you want to explore these topics more, just sort of a handle on who's like really interested in this stuff, would you mind uh, putting your name and you've got no hands there, so I'll start here with you. Uh, and if you're not interested, um, you can pass it on. Oops, sorry. And so today we're going to talk about uh, Christian unity. Uh, some of you know, Holly and I are expecting a child who's due today, so I did absolutely no preparation and asked Brandon Great. to prepare everything. Uh, so he's going to lead us today, and I'll add a few cents at the end of his talk, and we'll open it up to common discussion. Well, hi, guys. Uh, good morning. Um, yeah, I want to try to, uh, again, leave several minutes for questions. So I hope everyone has a handout. I think most of you do. Um, that kind of helps uh, you follow through what we're talking about today. So remember, what we've been stressing again, which I know you have on the top of your handout, is this whole six-week series has been just a reality check. We're acknowledging that we live in a postmodern or post-Christian society. So when we say we've entered a post-Christian society, what we mean is um, that it's post-Christendom, that uh, the culture out there in the world is no longer generally shaped by the Christian story. We used to be able to assume that the cultural outlook was, um, was somehow shaped by the Christian narrative, and if we needed to uh, get people in church, we just needed to sort of 
evangelize them and do something to get them back in. But they basically had the plot line of the of the gospel storyline, but that is just no longer the case. And even in the Bible Belt, even in the South, we need to recognize that um, the culture out there no longer has the public story of the gospel. In fact, we no longer have really any public story because we are um, marked increasingly by individualism, where we craft our own individual stories. And so that's what I said on the second bullet point. We are also postmodern, in which we societally no longer have a public story. So um, I, I know we have probably a little bit more time in Birmingham than, say, um, you know, Seattle, uh, but. I think what we need to recognize that even in Birmingham, uh, the the upcoming generations are no longer acquainted with the Bible like people used to be. Um, so our culture generally is just losing its grasp of Christianity. Even if that was a nominal cultural Christianity, that is just no longer the case. In fact, I was talking to Matt Curlin, who's the campus minister at Sanford. I was having coffee with him in the fall, and I remember him saying, so I went to Sanford undergrad, and he said, when you were an undergrad, there used to be theological debates all across campus. That was sort of a, a thing among Sanford undergrads. But he says, that's just no longer the case. Uh, what he's finding is that uh, undergrads who are coming into Sanford generally lack basic Bible knowledge. So that's part of what we're admitting here. And even the other part that we need to emphasize is that even those of um, even those people who are coming into church and who are generally Christian, we need to recognize that part of this part of this reality check is saying a lot of us are going to have a smorgasbord approach to Christianity. Um, Robert West, now a sociologist. Uh, who wrote a book called After the Baby Boomers, has called it religious tinkering. So basically, young adults, he says, are marked by religious tinkering. They sort of pull left and right from philosophy and music and Christianity and various Eastern religions and put together their own self-made spirituality. And what we need to recognize is that even in Birmingham, our churches are going to be filled with kind of a smorgasbord approach to spirituality and religion. And also, uh, which I put down here, is we, we just need to recognize that Orthodox Christianity, the church, is going to be increasingly marginalized. And so in that way, it's kind of a return to the early church. It's kind of a return to the church in the Roman period when the church was on the outcast of they were the outcasts. They were on the margins of society where the general society did not accept and appreciate them. Uh, and finally, there's a typo there, but an increasing number of people will no longer seek out a church. So the old model of church, um, where we used to assume a Christendom mindset, where we used to think build it, you know, build it and they will come, that's just not going to be the case anymore. It's not build a great church program and people will flock to it uh, because people are no longer going to seek out a church when we have lots of spirituality, options for spirituality and religion in our postmodern world. So, um, so what we need, so Matt and I in this class are wanting us to, 
We want us to be captured by a vision at the Advent. We want to be captured by a vision of getting the gospel spoken, uh, a vision of who we are as the body of Christ, one together in Christ as a witnessing community. So what I wanted to do, I can't read all of it because I know we're going to run out of time really quickly, is uh, just read a few sections of 1 Peter 1, 2 through 12. Um, and I encourage you, I've said this, I think, almost every class. I encourage you to read 1 Peter. Uh, Peter in this letter is um, he's calling on the church to recognize that they are exiles in a foreign land. And that's really what this class is about. We need to recognize that we are in a foreign society, that if we are no longer in Christendom, we're going to be on the margins of society. And so therefore, 1 Peter is going to direct, uh, address us directly. Um, so just to read quickly, and then I'll skip down. This is from 1 Peter 1. We'll start with verse 3. So he reminds us of the gospel. So if you have you know, an app on your phone or a Bible, and I hope you do, turn to 1 Peter 1, 3. So he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter here reminds the people of what God has done. He reminds them of their identity. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done this for us and who has made us this. And he acknowledges that these people are going through suffering and trials. And he says, even though this is now happening, you rejoice for that future that is to come. So notice, remember I said the postmodern world no longer has a public story. Notice that in the gospel, we receive a public story because the gospel says to us, you are a people who are going somewhere. And in spite of your suffering, in spite of whatever you are going through, um, you have hope in that future that is to come. And so then I skipping down to uh, verse 13 of chapter one. So in light of this truth, therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded Sober-minded, set your, set your hope fully on the grace that we will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So he says, in light of who you are, now carry yourself in such a way, in this way. Be holy, be the called out, set apart community, bearing witness to God. And so then I'm going to skip down to chapter 2 and verse 9. So he reminds them again of who they are. But you, church, you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the whole theology, I've tried to say it again and again, is this is who you are. You are the called out, holy, chosen people of God. You're the church and you are living in an exile. And yet you know that the future is coming where um, Jesus Christ will come again and you will obtain the outcome of your salvation. And so he says, in light of this truth, now carry yourself this way. Now recognize that you are exiles in a foreign land, and so bear witness in all your speaking and in all your doing, bear witness to him. And that's really the reality that we're facing up to right now in this class. Who are we? We're the church. We're the witnessing community bearing witness to Christ. And um, if you're taking notes or, or mental notes, um, I won't read from it, but 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31 uh, where Paul says that there are many members and one body. So we as the church, there are many members. So you have a hand, a foot, an eye, right? So it's like individuals all forming one body in one church. Well, we could say the same thing about the church now. So we could say the Advent, it's analogous to one local congregation is one member uh, and um you know, the Baptist church down the road is another member, right? So, so we're together as one body. And then the other verse I thought of was 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8. Um, if you were to read that, just notice, notice there how the Thessalonians are an example and actually support another local congregation. And I'm saying all this to say um, we want to highlight the church practicing Christian unity in our postmodern world. So that's where we're going. So again, we want us to be captured by a vision of getting the gospel spoken, a, a vision of who we are, one body in Christ, as the witnessing community, as exiles in a foreign land, but knowing that we have a public story, that Jesus now lives to triumph, and he is coming again. That is our story. And so we must simply retell the story of the gospel to our culture that has lost the story that has once shaped it. So we go down to the list of six that you have in your notes. So this is a recap. And we borrow this again from uh, Tim Keller's Center Church. So where have we been? We've said that in the postmodern world, the church must confront society's idols. Number two, the church must contextualize skillfully and communicate in the vernacular. Three, the church must equip people in mission in every area of their lives. Four, the church must be a counterculture for the common good. We must be a servant community, seeking the common good of all people. Number five, the church must itself be contextualized and should expect non-believers, inquirers, and seekers to be involved 
in most aspects of the church's life and ministry. So that's what we talked about last week. We should expect non-believers in church. And so now we come to today's um, very basic point, number six, the church must practice unity. So I want to give um, two basic reasons for why we should practice unity, and then I want Matt to say something, and then we'll open it up for questions. So we, so we need to practice unity. One is a theological reason, and two is a practical reason. So I've sort of already begun thinking with you in reading through 1 Peter and quoting 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians, the theological reason. But to distill it, the theological reason is that the gospel, that the, that the announcement of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, um, that gives us humble confidence or confident humility. Um, in the gospel, God makes himself known as the self-giving God who condescends to us in love. He condescends to us to the very bottom of our sin um, in sheer mercy and grace, in spite of our sin. And, and so there we, for our measureless sin, we receive measureless grace. And so the gospel gives us a whole new identity um, where we recognize that I am more sinful and flawed than I could have ever dreamed of, and yet, at the same time, I am more loved and accepted than I could have ever thought possible, right? So we have, we have these two paradoxical things coming together in the gospel. In the gospel, we recognize that we are sinners, that we are more messed up than we could have ever thought possible, and yet at the same time, we are more accepted in love than we could have dreamed. Right? So, so the gospel gives us the humility to recognize that we are messed up people. That there is just something terribly wrong with this world and we participate in it as individuals. And yet at the same time, we receive the gospel, the good news that in spite of our sin, God is the one who shows us mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. So, so the gospel changes our whole identity because we are freed from measuring ourselves. We don't have to compare ourselves to others, right? If we're living under the law, that means we have to compare ourselves to keeping up, right? Um, this is who we are, and we've done this, and those people over there don't do this, right? We're not measuring ourselves against other people because our identity is now rooted in Christ totally and securely. So individually and institutionally, we as Christians ought not to measure ourselves because our measure is received from the outside in the gospel. And so that means a gospel-shaped heart, the overflow of that is for us to seek the common good. And so we hope for others to flourish and for others to succeed, right? It's no longer about... Um, me proving my worth, it's about seeing that person or that group. We want them to flourish, right? It's, it's a modeling, it's a Philippians 2 way of thinking about our life in Christ. Just as God descended to us in love, so, so now we ought to descend to our neighbor in love, right? Um, we want others to flourish. We want others to succeed. But number two, there's also just a basic practical reason. So so the reality check that we live in a postmodern, post-Christian world, and this may sound self-serving, but I don't mean it this way, 
It's just to say that, practically speaking, we can't function the way we used to in a Christendom mindset. When everyone out there was generally shaped by the Christian story, and when everyone out there sought out a church and was generally Christian, even if it was just nominal, we used to be able to say, well, we're Episcopalian, and this is an example, we're Episcopalian, and this is what marks us out as different, and the Baptists over there, they're like that, or the Presbyterians are like that, or that church down the road is doing that, but over here we're doing this, right? We can't, we can no longer compare ourselves to them over there. Instead, what we now ought to do is recognize that we are one body in Christ, and we ought to, not legalistically, but define ourselves over and against the culture, right? We're to be a contrast community um, as the new, uh, as the new human, um, as the new creation in Christ, we are one body together, right? It's, we're not competing in a, in a consumer economy where Episcopalians are Nike and Baptists are Adidas and Presbyterians are Reebok, right? We're not marketing ourselves, uh, for consumer shopping, right? That's what we tend to do. And that's what we as individuals tend to do when we're looking for a church. Well, let me check it out. Let me see what fits my consumer preferences and tastes. But in the post-Christian world, we can't function that way. So um, just to uh, finish up that thought, if we do continue to rail against other people, not to say that we at the Advent are marked by that, but if we if we do operate in that way where we rail against other churches, we're actually just reinforcing what other people think of the church. Because the, the world actually looks at the church and thinks we're intolerant and divisive. Um, the world looks at the church and thinks we're intolerant and divisive. And when we carry ourselves in such a way where we're marketing ourselves over and against other churches, we're actually just reinforcing the stereotype. And I can assure you, um, just having worked in a company that um, I, I just worked around a lot of non-Christians, um, that is what the church, people thought of the church as a divisive, intolerant group of people. And so when we carry ourselves in that way, we're just reinforcing the stereotype. And so if we're to be a contrast community, a servant culture for the common good, um, if we're to be an attractive community that is marked by a gospel-shaped heart, then we can't carry ourselves in that way. So, so we're not to be turf conscious. We're to seek, we're to seek the other's good. And, and not only that, just in practical ways, we need to begin to think together um, how can we work together with other churches? And I know this is going to be tough. This is tough for me um, as I do college ministry. Uh, sometimes certain college ministries, they're not exactly how I would go about doing something. In fact, some things make me a little uncomfortable. And yet, um, and I don't have the perfect answer, it's tricky navigation, but we need to think together how to best work together with people not quite like us as much as possible and problems are going to arise uh, and we'll have to address those and think through those but the general point is we need to practice local christian unity as much as possible because we're marked 
by something greater than ourselves. It's not turf conscious where we're trying to get consumers into buying our product. We're forgetting the gospel spoken in our city. We're for, we're for seeking the building up of the whole human race, right? We're seeking the common good. So, um, so again, we're to be a contrast community that is marked by cross-shaped service, generosity, and love. And that will entail that we will work at promoting others ahead of ourselves. And so we should thus cooperate with and support other ministries in Birmingham as much as possible. So, so Matt, do you have any concluding thoughts I mean, or questions? Said, that was great. I mean, you said a lot of things that I wanted to say. Um, I think the, the thinking about the consumerism is super helpful. I mean, people use that phrase, church shopping. Um, I hear it on a weekly basis, actually. We're shopping the Advent. And I'll tell people when they tell me that you may not. You have to stay here six months. And then I've told some of you that. You know that. You must stay here six months and then make your decision. Get fully entrenched in the community. Because we're bringing that modernist, American, consumeristic attitude to the church. And we have to be wholly other. But that's what causes us to be kind of balkanized denominationally and whatnot. And we're working against each other. And I'd say there's a number of schemes here involved. Uh, we should uh, hope for the flourishing of other churches, especially uh, gospel evangelical churches, because they're going to bring more people to Christ. Um, and so where can we find across denominational boundaries opportunities to collaborate? I'll add one caveat. that There are probably certain churches that we don't want to cooperate with. Um, you know, to a certain degree, uh, I think there, the, if you know anything about it, the 20th century ecumenical movement was problematic in this regard, um, often overlooking certain theological convictions. Um, but I would say on the flip side, there are plenty of churches that we could collaborate with where uh, we, we agree on the essentials. And there might be secondary and tertiary uh, uh, <coughs> things that we have differing opinions on, and we need to understand what those are. And so how can we be as inclusive as possible and yet still have boundaries, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and I think that's actually much broader than what we normally do, which is tending to be very, very insular at our congregational level. Um, so how can we be as inclusive as possible outside of our congregational boundaries without capitulating and collaborating with churches that have um, been more shaped by modernist culture than, than, the, than the Bible. Um, I hope you're tracking with what I'm saying. And as I said, those are my two things that I want to say is that caveat. And also, I'm about this for the sake of broad-scale evangelism, for winning the world for Christ. I mean, in terms of like just the sheer uh, missionary number of people, uh, we should want to see as many congregations as possible flourish because that's where evangelism happens. Uh, is at the local church. I mean, when it sinks into people's lives and really matters on a long-term basis. So who are those churches that we can really collaborate with more um, uh, here in Birmingham or around the nation? Um, and how, what does that look like? I think we're sort of novice at this. We're not very good. Uh, some of us might be better than others. And some churches are probably better at it than us. Um, and to have the humility to, 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 to share resources and, and think together. And not just the pastors, you know, sharing pulpits and things like that. I mean, people really seeing each other as part of the, the body of Christ, as Brandon said. And uh, a lot of the things that we've talked about 
earlier about connectionalization and speaking in the vernacular and um, confronting society's idols uh, will be more effective if we if we do these things together than trying to to be lone rangers either as solo Christians or as solo congregations. Well, we kind of come to the end of this entire series. We've got about 12 minutes for discussion. Um, we can talk about Christian unity. I, I hope we will a little bit if any of you have any sort of responses or questions. But we could talk about anything that we've talked about so far in the last six weeks or so. Anybody have anything else to say? That's okay. Um, well, we want to say this. First of all, thank you so much. Investigated and received the scripture references. But I was just thinking at the first point, Brandon, as you, as you began, back like 40, 50 years ago, or what you described as, um, as now it's so changed because people are, people, missionaries back then would have loved that. You knew they weren't. Right. And not, they didn't have their vaccination. Right. They thought they were. So now it's more black and white. So in that sense, that's. It's a positive thing. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Uh, you know, I, <clears throat> we have a lot to be thankful about. Someone like Billy Graham, for example. But the the days of the Billy Graham crusade are over. I mean, where you could assume that you could kind of come in town and give a, a altar call kind of sermon and reconvert nominal Christians. Uh, that 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 still will work in certain places, but. The culture is moving in a new direction where you can't just sort of come in on your white horse and give the inoculation. It has to be more deeply entrenched and actually as more broad scale than somebody coming in and, and, and giving a sort of revival talk. Um, and, uh, though, though, like I said, a lot of us could be thankful to what Billy Graham did. I mean, it's probably shaped some of your lives. And I mean, he had a huge effect worldwide, but that was speaking to uh, a sort of Christendom sort of society, uh, and we've moved out of that, but often um, we take those methods and continue to use them, and then we look around and think, what's going on? Why isn't this working anymore? Why isn't the silver bullet working anymore? Okay. Uh, any other responses, questions? Yeah, Yeah. Well, the... Um, I love that you're speaking about unity. One of the things that worries me a little bit is... Uh, sort of a theology philosophy that uh, a number of Yale theologians have spoken about, and I think it's sort of getting into churches now. And that's the idea, that's the idea that, uh, but what keeps us from uniting with other churches with doctrine, right? If we don't agree with doctrine, we just can't be together. Uh, but these theologians say that uh, uh, you sh we should think of doctrine as uh, a grammar, uh, doctrine shouldn't be thought of as statements about ultimate reality, but about the doctrine is like a grammar. Like, so if you don't ask a grammar, is it true or false? Mm -hmm. You ask a grammar, does it work? Yeah. Um, so each church has a different sort of grammar to teach you how to a way of being in the world. So we have you have this grammar, I have that grammar. And that way we can be united without uh, capitulating doctrinally. Um, and I see that I see that a lot. Uh, 
What do you guys think about that? Unity with capitulation? Is that what yeah. That's what you see Without capitulation? Yeah. Yeah, with, uh, you know, people just saying, well, this is how we do things here. And since doctrine is not about ultimate reality, because after all, we cannot, ultimate, we cannot know ultimate reality, um, this is all we can do. Yeah, well, back to lesson one, you could say more about this, but confronting society's idols. In order to have unity, we have to maintain the confrontation of the idols as well. So there are probably certain places where we just can't come together, I think. Any thoughts on that? I mean, Dr. George's statement comes to mind, which I sort of operate by, right? An ecumenism with conviction, right? We maintain, I don't know if this is getting at what you're exactly saying, but I I won't surrender my convictions just for pragmatic unity. Yeah. I, I think that's what you're getting at, right? We don't, I don't know if you're saying we want to caution against losing our doctrine. Is that your, is that your point? Or are you cautioning us the other way? No, I think that we should be careful not to think about doctrine as just grammar. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. 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 So I want to mean. Go ahead. Go ahead. Referring to, to God and Right. Yeah. Right. We don't want to give up the convictions of the gospel, clear, which is, I think, where it begins to get difficult. Right. There's certain people that I can know I can easily align with, and then it becomes fuzzy. That's the sort of practical difficulty of this. But I, I guess the re simple recognition is that we ought to try to work in the direction of unity as much as we can. And yet, if there's a church that denies the resurrection in its preaching, or, I mean, I, you know, I mentioned the Episcopal professor I know of who denies the resurrection, right? I mean, that's an individual, but, and that's, that's a very clear example of, I'm not going to work together with him for someone who denies the central point of the faith. Um, is that sort of, yeah, I mean, I think you raise a good point. I, it gets fuzzy and difficult, but let's live in the gray, maybe. Let me give you a vision of this that is helpful for seeing it, and I think we could do this the 47 other weeks of the year somehow, is our Latin preaching yeah. series. Yeah. Uh, our Latin preaching series includes people from all different denominational backgrounds, often from denominations that of people you don't often see sharing a pulpit with an Episcopal church. Some people actually have to get permission to come preach with a, in our church because their denomination is dubious of ours um, uh, for good reason, you know? Or their, you know, Missouri Synod is like that about everybody. So if a Missouri Synod pastor comes, they have to, they have to get Missouri Synod Lutheran Church to go anywhere and they have to get permission. And usually they are on the side of caution. Um, but I think there are places where we could expand that uh, sort of work beyond the Latin preaching series, where we only do that for five uh, weeks out of the year. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, look at the landscape of that. A lot of Presbyterians, Baptists, um, increasing number of people from uh, uh, black churches, um, uh, yeah, Anglican, broadly speaking, from England and uh, here, even here in the United States. Episcopal clergy, sure, uh, but not not exclusively. I think probably in a previous era, the Latin preaching series, I mean, I've looked at the history, has been, a, a, you know, sort of the cardinal rectors of the Episcopal Church and big name bishops and stuff, but we've moved in a direction of who do we really agree with theologically? We want to come preach the gospel to the city of Birmingham. And uh, there are some, you know, if we have a Baptist come and preach, obviously we disagree with them on infant baptism. But uh, there are other, uh, a lot of other things about the gospel that we do agree with them on. Uh, and so we're not going to agree 100%, but as long as 
the primary essentials. Uh, another place of ministry that I think does a good job of this is uh, the whole uh, movement of the White Horse Inn uh, radio broadcast, now a podcast, and their magazine, Modern Reformation, where they're pretty clear on convictions around the gospel in terms of justification. They might disagree on sacraments, which I think are a real essential, but uh, we all <laughs> disagree on sacraments a lot of the time. Uh, but there are a lot of other topics uh, that we do agree on. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to say that um, after looking at several different denominations and some church history, and I'm no expert, but we have noticed there's a lot of governmental differences uh, between denominations when there isn't large doctrinal issues they still have a governmental issue of how they conduct a church and how they distribute pastors and how they, you know, do collective things or not. And uh, it would be wise for us to uh, be aware that governmental issues shouldn't be a basis for division when doctrine can be looked at and talked about uh, we can set governmental things aside administrative things aside yeah um the uh, word for that the theological word for that is polity um and it has been divisive so much to the fact so much to the point that denominations are uh, named for their polity structure the episcopal church means we have bishops the presbyterian church means it doesn't have bishops but is organized by a, a group of elders. Uh, the uh, Congregational churches uh, mean that they're organized congregationally and might have a loose network beyond themselves, um, and, and so on. Uh, and, uh, and certainly, uh, th this is a point, this is where, what, this is one of the bones I have to pick with the 20th century ecumenical movement, if you know anything about it, is it wanted everybody to have bishops and all of a sudden you exclude anybody, often very uh, clear gospel uh, churches who just don't see that in the scriptures uh, when they read things like uh, First, uh, uh, First Timothy uh, or, or Titus. Uh, the language there, they don't see the word bishop being used in the same way that we do. Uh, and so it looked for the model usually to Roman Catholicism. Uh, and, and, and wanting to usually sort of um, lean toward Rome, the Roman Catholic Church as the capital C church that we really need to, to re-up with. Um, there's a, there are a lot of problems there. Um, and yet, we probably don't do well nowadays in the 21st century for all the reasons that Brandon said to go on Facebook and bash the Roman Catholic Church. Because the world outside of ourselves sees that and they say, see those Christians, they're hypocrites. Because for a lot of people who are not Christian, the difference between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism might as well be the, as clear as the difference for us between Sunni and Shia Islam. I mean, most of us don't know anything about the real difference between Sunni and Shia Islam, and a lot of people who are not Christian couldn't tell you the difference between Protestantism, Charismatic, Roman Catholic, it all just kind of looks the same. Uh, and so when Christians are infighting publicly, uh, and that makes its way on national media and whatnot, it's easy to point the finger and, and say, see, <laughs> why would I want to become a member of that community? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first, good luck with the baby. 
Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> if, you're thinking, at what point in time does balance shift? What, when, what event started making the shift from mainly assumed Christian culture in the United States to not? Well, yeah, we mentioned that in the first uh, class. Um, a lot of people will sort of, um, it's tough to define where the postmodern world is. Maybe early to mid 1900s, somewhere in there. Um, I mean, this has been, the, this is basically, I said the other day, we've, we're basically experiencing a long divorce, right? The West and Christianity used to be married. That was what medieval Europe was all about. And what we've been experiencing throughout the modern world is a divorce. And now we've come to the end of that divorce. When does the throttle get pushed down? It depends on where you are geographically. Yeah. Uh, so, where you grew up. Right. Yeah. Where I grew up, I grew up, you know, in the 1980s as a child. Uh, it was clearly post-Christian for decades by that point. Um, I mean, just the idea of church was a real non-fringe concept. Um, and so, yeah, it just sort of depends on where you are. But I would say that that. The, the United States is, hasn't always been as Christianized as we like to think. And there's a lot of history you can get into that, but even down to its founding. Um, and uh, there are a lot of misconceptions that we have about our own history. Uh, and we have revival movements to thank for the, the culture being more or less uh, Christianized at certain points. And so we kind of live in light of a lot of different confluences of intellectual movements and church revivals and stuff like that. Uh, and this has a, a geographic nuance based on whether you're in the South or the Midwest or the Northeast or the West Coast or Alaska. <laughs> Alaska, I mean, is where you go if you want to be an individual. Um, and uh, so nobody's going to church hardly there. Um, but anyway, we have so much more we could say. We have this sheet of paper that we're passing around. If you're more, if you're interested in uh, following up on this topic, uh, we will figure out something at some point. Uh, and yeah, if you have uh, any interest on your own, did you put on the handout yeah, the recommended uh -huh. reading? You want to say anything about that? Just notice that on the, you probably saw on the bottom of your handout, uh, we put together some recommended reading. If you're interested in following up and reflecting, so thank you so much for listening. Go in peace. Thank you. Yeah.